KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. We are finally making our way out. The country is getting vaccinated. Cases are falling. So what is keeping us from breaking free for good? This virus continues to mutate and create variants. Dr. Paul Offit from the Vaccine Education Center at CHOP explains the Delta variant and why it's concerning doctors. He says we'll know by winter if the progress we've made is good enough. This virus is not what it was claimed to be. I don't know of any other respiratory virus that does this. KYW Medical Editor Dr. Brian McDonough sees patients who have recovered from the virus and are now dealing with the long-term effects effects and frustrations. They're going, okay, well, why am I having these headaches? Can you explain to me, doctor, why we don't have a lot of those answers? Looking back, what did we as a country get right and where did we go wrong? Dr. Perry Halkidis, dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health, on what we learned from COVID-19 and if we're any more prepared for the next health emergency. To actually have had a really effective response, we fall extremely short. And Dr. Jamie Zuckerman tries to prepare us for the mental health fallout and what you can do to make the coming months a little easier for yourself and for your loved ones. Collective trauma, meaning everybody experienced this. I'm Carol McKenzie. This is The Road Past the Pandemic, presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Paul Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Offit, we've come a long way in this pandemic, but it's not over yet. And today we want to talk about where we are right now and kind of where we're heading. So let's start off with where we are. Masks are coming off. COVID restrictions are being lifted. In our area, people are getting vaccinated and that's showing up. Uh, Case counts are way down. So how do you feel right now about the progress we've made and where do you think we are in the timeline of this pandemic? Okay, so I think there are three things working against this virus. One is summer. SARS-CoV-2 virus is a winter virus, and you certainly saw that last year. When the virus came into the U.S. and started killing people at the beginning of March, you know, you got 1,000 deaths a day, 1,500 deaths a day, and then it started to come down. And the numbers were fairly down last year in the summer, even though we had a fully susceptible population, and even though we didn't have a vaccine yet, then it took off, right? October, November, December, 2,000 deaths a day, 3,000 deaths a day, 4,000 deaths a day. Then it started to come down again as we as the weather got warmer. But the numbers are, are much further down this summer than they were last summer because of two things. One, the vaccine. We have about 50% of the population that's now fully vaccinated. That's good. And the other thing is natural infection. I mean, you probably have about 100 million people in this country who've already been naturally infected, which does provide protection against uh, disease associated with re-exposure to the virus. I think there are two things that are working on behalf of this virus that I think worry me. One is that 50% population immunity is not enough. We need a higher percentage than that if we're really going to effectively stop the spread, primarily because this virus continues to mutate and create variants. So these variants, like most recently, the Delta variant, I think is going to be a problem. It's clearly more contagious. And the more contagious these variants are, the greater percentage of the population need to have vaccinated. And the second thing that I think works on behalf of the virus, if you will, is the anti-vaccine movement. There is just a solid 25% of this population that refuses to be vaccinated. And What do you do if that's still too big of a percentage that will continue to allow this virus to spread and cause harm? Um, I want to I want to go talk about the uh, the Delta variant in just a moment. But first, I want to go back to basically what you said about 50 percent of the population not being enough to, you know, put an end, I guess, to this virus. Um, So what are I want to revisit herd immunity. That's something we've been talking about this entire time. What are your thoughts on that now? There's actually a formula for what percentage of the population needs to be immune to effectively stop spread of the virus. And it's based on two factors. One is contagiousness of the virus. The more contagious the virus, the greater percentage of the population that has to be vaccinated. And the second issue is vaccine effectiveness. Not just effectiveness at preventing severe critical disease, it also has to be highly effective against mild or moderate disease because that also is going to be associated with spread. Vaccine effectiveness is defined as being able to to inoculate somebody, immunize someone so that they're no longer 
shedding virus or contagious if they're then exposed to the virus again. So what's happening is because these viruses now, the variants are, are more contagious. And as a result of that, um, you know, you have vaccines that are very effective against severe critical disease, but not quite as effective as asymptomatic or mild disease. That keeps ratcheting up the number. I think 80% is frankly the least population immunity that we need for protection. Now, remember, population immunity, you also get to count natural infection. So I think we can get there. But I think really we need to vaccinate another 80 to 100 million people to really effectively stop this virus when winter comes. And that's when we're going to know. We're going to know how well we're doing when winter hits. Because if, we, if we're doing well, there'll just be a bump next winter. If we're not doing well, then there'll be a surge next winter. So we've been vaccinating people since December now. For people who have been sitting on the fence saying, like, I want to see how the people who get the vaccine first, how they're doing, if it's harmful. What have we learned about it? Have there been any harmful side effects from these vaccines? No, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I think you, I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body, including vaccines, especially vaccines in many ways, because they're given to healthy people for the most part. So that's fair. I mean, Maurice Hillman, who I consider to be the father of modern vaccines, said it best. He said, quote, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. Well, in terms of the mRNA vaccines, the first 300 million doses are out there. So now you know. Now you know what the safety issue is. And vaccines, like every medical product, can have safety issues. And and both of these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna, as well as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, do have very, very rare safety issues. I mean, the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, it's uh, it's clotting, so-called thrombotic thrombocytopenic syndrome, which occurs in 1.9 per million vaccinees. So it's obviously extremely rare. You're much more likely to suffer clotting from getting the virus than than from or getting the infection than getting the vaccine. And then the second that's just recently come up is this myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle associated with the mRNA vaccine. Right now, that looks to be an incidence of around one in 50,000. Now, remember, there was just a study done actually um, in among Big Ten athletes that was published in JAMA Cardiology that basically all those athletes, when they got uh, COVID, were then screened to see whether they had any evidence of heart muscle involvement with um, uh, MRI, cardiac MRI. And what they found was that one in 43 had evidence of myocarditis, mostly asymptomatic, but about a third was symptomatic. So it's common. One in 43 people who have COVID-19 who are healthy young people will have evidence for myocarditis as compared to one in 50,000 that get the vaccine. So again, the benefits of the vaccine clearly outweigh the risks, but there's always risks. There's Mm -hmm. risks to take aspirin. There's risk to taking an antibiotic. There's risk to taking anything. The issue in medicine is not whether something is absolutely safe. It's whether or not the benefits of the product clearly and definitively outweigh the risks, which as far as we know for all these vaccines now is true. Do we have any idea about this heart inflammation, Uh, even though you said it's very rare? Do we have any idea why that might be happening? No, I think that, that trying to understand the so-called pathogenesis or disease process that has allowed that to occur, I think we'll learn over time. But it is important to note that that uh, the virus also causes uh, myocarditis. And, he, and for, the, for kids, I mean, I work in a pediatric hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You know, we have uh, we see so-called MIS-C, this multisystem inflammatory disease of children, which uh, um, if, if you if you get that, 75% of those children will have evidence of myocarditis. So there is, um, you know, there's a common virus. And if you want to avoid clotting or you want to avoid uh, uh, myocardial involvement, um, then the best way to do that actually is to get a vaccine. I want to talk about variants now. You mentioned the Delta variant. It appears to be much more contagious and it makes people sicker, faster. The CDC expects it to become the dominant one this summer. What are your thoughts? Is that the one you're most concerned about too? Are there others out there that are just as bad? I'm sure there will be others out there that are just as bad. I mean, to, to put it in perspective, this is a bat coronavirus. And when it, it, it raised its head in Wuhan and then started sweeping through China, it, it became the first variant. The first variant doesn't have a, uh, a Greek letter designation. It was called D614G. That's the variant that swept through Europe. That's the variant that swept through the United States and killed hundreds of thousands of people and was soon replaced by the next variant, because that's what this virus is trying to do. It's trying to, to adapt itself to growth in people. 
people. And to successfully adapt itself, it needs to become more contagious. So that was the, the next one. Now what is called the alpha variant, the, previously the UK variant, that took over in the United States. Now you have the next variant, which is the Delta variant that started in India and now has swept through the United Kingdom. It's now gaining a, a momentum in the United States. And that is a, a little less uh, um, um, susceptible to immunity, at least mild, to protection against mild disease than was the the the, uh, the alpha variant. I think we can assume that this is not the last variant we're going to see as this virus continues to adapt. And the only way to stop that is to vaccinate this entire population, at least everyone who can be vaccinated, as quickly as possible to stop spread. Because if the virus continues to spread and is continuing to spread, then it's just going to continue to mutate and to continue to create variants. We need to get vaccinated now. And I think what worries me here is that because the numbers now are fairly low, because it's summer, people are thinking, great, this pandemic is behind us, and it is not behind us. In Springfield, Missouri, they say the Delta variant may be responsible for a six-fold increase in hospitalizations. Vaccination rates in uh, Missouri are very low. What does that mean? I mean, you know, we're not, our borders are not closed. In other words, the the, the variant's not going to stop at Pennsylvania's border because, you know, we have more people vaccinated. So, you know, what happens there concerns all of us, doesn't it? Absolutely. The more the virus spreads, the more it's going to create variants. I mean, it's not it's, it's not surprising that the, the states or regions that have lower vaccine rates have higher rates of disease, higher rates of hospitalization and higher rates of death. This is something we should have learned 200 years ago with the first vaccine, the smallpox vaccine. Vaccines save lives. And I just am amazed that there is a, a solid 25 percent of our population that simply refuses to get vaccinated. And um I just think we're going to have to deal with that a little more toughly than the more in a tougher manner than we are now. And you're seeing that. I mean, the Penn Health System, for example, is mandating vaccines. If you want to work at the Penn Penn Health System, you have to get a vaccine, which is fair, because if you're going to work around a vulnerable population of hospitalized people, you owe it to them and to the other staff and to yourself to be vaccinated. What about kids? You know, there's concern about this Delta variant. It seems to affect kids more in the UK. Scientists say it's hitting people 12 to 20, pretty hard. It's been responsible for a couple of hundred outbreaks in educational settings. Um, So when you look at that, you look at people not getting vaccinated and vaccination rates among the adolescent population are really low. How do we move through that? And do you think you talked about mandates? Is this something that we're going to have to mandate for kids, uh, you know, maybe 12 to 18 when they're going into school in the fall? I think that would certainly be for the for 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 make for better health, both both for the children who attend those schools as well as for everybody who comes in contact with those children. I think that's going to be easy, more easily done in the private sector than in, in the public sector. But I do think it would certainly be a value. You're right. I mean, the immunization rates in the 12 to 18 year old are pretty woeful. And, you know, now hopefully we'll have a vaccine for the six to 12 year old by the end of year or beginning of next year, but we need to to vaccinate. This virus is going to be with us for a while. Uh, There's 195 countries in this world, many of which have never given a single dose of vaccine. Uh, Think about it. We still give a polio vaccine every year in the United States, even though we haven't had a case of of polio in, in this country since the late 1970s. We do it because polio still exists in the world and could see easily walk into this country and start an outbreak. So, Think about that for this virus. This virus is going to be with us for a while and children become adults. And and although keep in mind, children do get sick. I mean, there's been right. at least 4 million children have been infected. There's been at least uh, uh, 40,000 or so that have been hospitalized. There's been at least 300 who have been killed. That That's in, in line with other viruses for which we have vaccines like influenza, measles, uh, and others, chicken pox. So I, I do think there's clearly value in vaccinating children. Well, and the CDC just said the rates of COVID-19 associated hospitalization among adolescents exceeded historical rates for for flu during comparable periods. This was in March and April. Um, And yet, you know, some parents are concerned about safety. There is still that idea that kids don't really get that sick. The FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, which you are on, you recently had a meeting to discuss the data you need to see from Pfizer and Moderna in order to recommend full approval for kids. And I I wonder if you could talk about that process a little bit, because I feel, you know, some people have this idea that 
these are, quote, experimental or they're just kind of being thrown out there willy nilly because it's a pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can give us an idea, a little insight into what you and what your fellow committee members are looking for here. It's certainly not experimental at this point. I mean, so, for example, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the rotavirus vaccine, which is a, a sort of intestinal virus that causes dehydration in, in young children. But it's a, it's a vaccine for babies. I mean, it's given by mouth at two, two, four and six months of age. What we didn't have then when we were doing those trials, but what we do have now for this va- vaccine is an enormous wealth of data in adults and, and young adults and older adolescents. So, you know, you're not flying blind here. There's an enormous sort of portfolio of safety and efficacy for these vaccines. And as we de-escalate and work our way down, we've gone initially down to the 16-year-old, now we're down to the 12-year-old. And the question is, how much data did we need? And when we talked about this at the FDA, how many hundreds or thousands of children need to be vaccinated before we feel comfortable, remembering that children are at risk. If I had to give the the best reason for why I think children should be vaccinated, it's this multi-system inflammatory disease, which occurs primarily between six and 14 years of age, at median about nine years of age. These kids are sick. They come in with high fever, evidence of lung disease, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease. Some of them have have long-term problems. I mean, this, this virus is not what it was claimed to be. When it came out of China, it was billed as a winter respiratory virus like influenza. And like influenza could cause pneumonia and could cause fatal pneumonia. It's far more than that. This virus has the capacity to make you react against your the, the lining of your own blood vessels. And because every organ in your body has a blood supply, every organ is at risk. I don't know of any other respiratory virus that does this. This is a heinous virus. And I think the quicker that we can stop the spread, the better off we'll be, including children. What do you think fall is going to look like? I think when we hit late fall, meaning October, November, I think you're going to see a surge in cases. I think it'll primarily be in those areas that are are unvaccinated or undervaccinated. I think, again, you'll see 1,000 deaths a day, 2,000 deaths a day. I think you'll see increase in hospitalizations because we just have not learned the lesson that you you need to vaccinate a higher percentage of the population that's currently vaccinated. I don't know what else the Biden administration can do. I mean, you know, they're, they're they're doing everything they can for incentives. They certainly solved two of the biggest problems coming out of the last administration, which is they figured out how to mass produce the vaccine. And they essentially set up something we didn't have in in public health in this country, which is a a ability to mass administer the vaccine to adults. We've done that. Now we've hit a wall. And that wall is basically an anti-vaccine sentiment in this country that puts us all at risk. The the one that bothers me the most, actually, just because I'm a sports fan, but when Cole Beasley, who's who's a professional football player, said that that with the NFL director, he's decided not to be vaccinated. And, and he doesn't like it that he's being asked to mask if he's not vaccinated. He doesn't like that. He said, look, if you if you don't like it, just don't come near me. But see, he, he, he offers the classic anti-vaccine trope, which is what do you care whether or not I vaccinate because you're vaccinated, which makes two false uh, assumptions. One, that vaccines are 100% effective, which isn't true. There's still people who have breakthrough illness who can be hospitalized and die from this virus, even though they've been vaccinated. And two, there's a significant percentage of people in this country who can't be vaccinated. They can't be vaccinated because they're getting chemotherapy for their cancers or biological agents for their chronic diseases. They depend on those around them to protect them. And when people like Cole Beasley say, says, you know, I don't want to get this vaccine, it's an enormously selfish thing to do. It's not a personal decision. It's a decision he's also making for other people. And it shouldn't be his right to make that decision for other people. Do you think we're going to be, need uh, boosters and do you have any idea like when we could need them? So if you look at the the immune response that's induced both by natural infection and by immunization with either the mRNA vaccines or these vectored virus vaccines like the J&J or AstraZeneca vaccine, it, the, the cellular, so-called cellular immune response that's evoked, so-called T-cells, helper T-cells, cytotoxic T-cells, looks to be vigorous enough that I would expect that immunity would last at least against severe critical disease for a few years. So if you draw the line at preventing hospitalization, preventing ICU admission, preventing death, I would think we would need a booster every few years, but I I wouldn't think we'd need it yearly. Again, we don't know. We're certainly following that. The CDC is looking at hospitalizations in people who've been previously uh, vaccinated or naturally infected to see what strains they're infected with and to see whether that starts to increase, in which case we would need boosters sooner. But I would predict every three to five years. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
Dr. Brian McDonough is KYW's medical editor. He's helped guide us through the last year, and he's answered questions from our listeners and from us. Thanks for being with us here, Doc, today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So there's been a lot of focus on the big picture through this pandemic. A lot of big numbers, statewide, countywide mandates. And sometimes, though, that big picture tends to swallow up the toll this pandemic has taken on people and families. You talk with people about their own stories and experiences every day. And I'm curious, what are you hearing from your patients right now? What are their concerns when they kind of look ahead? Are they hopeful Or I'm guessing that some people at this point are dealing with a lot of frustration and grief. You know, it's so individual for each person. But if I was going to say things that I've seen as a common thread, the first thing I would say is there's a general feeling of, is this too good to believe? In other words, I really still want to wear my mask in a restaurant or I really think I'm hesitant about going out. I'm still worried that maybe what happened to a family member could happen to me because it has hit people on so many individual levels. The second thing is, and I think you really you really say it well, is that there's people who know they have had personal loss and they don't want that to be forgotten. You know, there's a sense of guilt in the sense like, why did I make it and another person not? Or why did I get through this and other people have other severe symptoms because it's so random in how it attacked. And then there's the last factor, which is there's still people in denial who even question, did it really happen? Despite all the overwhelming facts, they're looking at it as, oh, is this some sort of conspiracy or something? So you've got all these different approaches to things. You know, as a physician, we just look at the science and the facts and what happened and and, and try to move from there. When it comes to, so we're, you know, far enough out from this pandemic now where you must be treating people who had COVID. And I'm wondering what you're seeing, what health effects they're suffering, because we keep hearing of these different things that people are coming down with, uh, not just long haulers, but in some case, long haulers, that people are dealing with stuff months out. What are you seeing and and how is the medical community handling these different things? Well, I can tell you one thing that we're starting to see from the medical community perspective is already I'm starting to see articles appearing where I can read and learn, you know, people's paths and also even coursework where there are now courses being offered to physicians to explain how to treat some of the long-term impact of COVID because we're starting to see that. So I think that on the medical you know, educational side, we're already seeing that. But from a pure person person level, here's the issue. We think about a virus. Many of the symptoms can be vague for a virus. Mm-hmm. So the severe issues are easy to recognize and they're tough to deal with. The things such as breathing issues, the heart irregularities, those neurologic issues, those big things are, are a big problem for a, a certain group. But then the next group are those that are getting headaches, fatigue, cloudiness in their memory, or they feel that they're just uh, suffering from anxiety and or depression. Those types of things, that's where I think the frustration is for the patients. They're going, okay, well, why am I having these headaches? Can you explain to me, doctor, why? You know, I have to say, well, we're starting to see it in people who have had COVID. Here's how we're going to treat it. Well, you know, deep down, they want to know, well, why? <laughs> why did this happen? And we don't have a lot of those answers. I can explain some things, but some of these things have just happened, and it's a concern. That's, and that's the, you know, you want to call a virus diabolical. That's the diabolical aspect of this virus. So a big focus right now is on getting vaccinated, and the numbers, unfortunately, the, the rate, the vaccination rate has slowed pretty dramatically, and there's a fairly large segment of people who are choosing not to get vaccinated. The reasons, you know, are different perhaps For some, it's political. For some, it's they feel like it's, quote unquote, experimental or they just want to wait to see what happens with the people who have gotten it. And so I'm wondering if you talk to, you know, if you're hearing a lot of this from your patients and how do you talk to people who are still on the fence about getting vaccinated? Well, I'm, first of all, I try to be very understanding and I, and I try to say, listen, I understand your hesitancy and I want to respect your choice. And then I actually will say, 
you notice what I'm seeing you, because I'm wearing a mask in a clinical setting, I'm wearing a mask. And the reason I'm wearing a mask has very little to do with me. I've been vaccinated and I'm very comfortable that I'm not going to end up in an ICU or die. I can't say the same for you. And I'm wearing the mask for you. So I want you to understand you can make your choice about a vaccine, but think about the dynamic here. I am doing all I can to protect you because you're vulnerable. I don't know why you choose to be vulnerable, but you're vulnerable and this could kill you. But I also look at it the same way as when I talk to someone about a smoking habit. You know, I say, here's what can happen. I'm hoping for you that the percentages are on your side. (laughs) I hope that happens. But when I look at the big picture, I don't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get through this. And I just have that conversation. And then I say, listen, think about it. And I've had people choose to get the vaccine in their own time. I've also uh, have had people say, no, I totally disagree with you. And for whatever reason, and I say, okay, I, I, I can only tell you what I can to help. And, and I think that's the way we, we have to approach it. I think if you get into, the, into an argument or become aggressive, I, I don't think that helps. And I also think, yes, we know that the more people get vaccinated, the better it is for everyone. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's part of a social contract. But, you know, if you're not going to do it for others, really selfishly do it for yourself. Dr. McDonough, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. And and hopefully, you know, we've seen the worst of it and we'll get through this. But thanks for having me on. I want to take a moment to ask you to think back to the beginning of the pandemic. What do you remember about it? I remember um, when we first got news of COVID-19 being a virus that was overseas. It started in China. The first confirmed case of a new deadly coronavirus in the U.S. is a man from Washington State who traveled out of country. Here's KYW's Mike Doherty. At least nine people in China have died as the disease spreads in the city of Wuhan. 450 cases have been confirmed there, according to Chinese health officials. The coronavirus has killed more than 300 people since the first case was detected in China in December. And the first death now occurred outside of China, reported in the Philippines today. Some 1,400 people worldwide have been infected. Eight confirmed cases in the U.S., the most recent one in Boston. And at first, not being terribly concerned that it was going to come this way, I thought, okay, you know, they can contain it. And and in fact, the first people we interviewed for our KYW In-Depth podcast about it, we interviewed them in person. Can you start by telling us how worried we should be? What are the odds that you or I or anyone here is going to get this? So I think we should be prepared, not panicked. More and more cases are being reported. More and more deaths, unfortunately, are being reported. There will be more cases as we get better and better diagnostics. And boy, did things change quickly. It just seems like overnight somebody threw a switch and we went from it's not really necessary to wear a mask to you have to wear a mask, you have to socially distance, and then things just started shutting down. All K-12 to Pennsylvania schools. We had heard that was out there. Uh, and that's interesting, Ian, because it's, it's statewide. It's clear uh, you had Major League Soccer, NHL, uh, Major League Baseball, as of 4 o'clock, canceled the rest of spring training. And, and they moved. it seems like... Yesterday, but it seems like lifetimes ago. Yeah, the uh, the cases of coronavirus uh, have been concentrated. The cases in Pennsylvania have been concentrated in Montgomery County. We we had a couple more crop up uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, think about this: we've lost more than six hundred thousand of our fellow Americans to this virus. Nearly four million people around the world have died. We spent trillions of dollars in healthcare funding, money to make vaccines, to get those vaccines out, to help uh, people get by, to get food, to pay for shelter while the pandemic just wreaked havoc on the economy. You know, I remember seeing news reports of lines upon lines of vehicles at food banks. Brian, good morning. First thing, uh, what do people need to know before they go to one of these food distribution sites? 
Well, it, the most important thing is that we're providing uh, free food, no proof of income, no IDs required. People uh, who used to donate to food banks who all of a sudden found themselves needing that help and how shocking it was. But we have seen a huge demand for food. All the stops have been pulled out for months, and we don't know when we'll be able to put them back in. And it seems entirely possible that we will escape this pandemic, maybe without even really learning about how to escape the next one. I mean, you think about what did we learn from this? Are we equipped for when the next one happens? Because scientists say there is going to be a next one. Are we more prepared today to deal with another health crisis than we were before this pandemic hit? Coming up, we'll find out. This is The Road Past the Pandemic, presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Jay Scott Smith. Every day, my colleagues here at KYW News Radio uncover stories in our neighborhoods. These are the things that people are so frustrated with. Sometimes it doesn't all fit on the radio. None of this was captured on a surveillance camera. But we talk about it on the rundown from KYW News Radio. Listen free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Road Past the Pandemic, presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Perry Halkidis is dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health. Dr. Halkidis, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So we've seen, you know, case numbers draw uh, fall off dramatically as more and more people become vaccinated. It feels like we're moving kind of past the emergency part of this pandemic into this next phase. But this next phase is somewhat confusing. And as someone who looks at the public health emergencies and looking back, I know this is one of the things you're examining, and that is, what did we do well and what did we fail at here? Right. That's a superb question. When we look at the context of the epidemic over the course of the last 18 months and the potential of the United States to actually have had a really effective response we fall extremely short. Here's what we, I think we did wrong. Number one, we localized the problem instead of centralizing the problem. We put the impetus on all of the states and the localities to handle this on their own without any real effort on the part of the federal government to control things. Number two, there was a lack of urgency and a lack of a need to make change effectively and quickly. And number three would be that we quite frankly, tried to open the economy too soon. And as a result of that, we continue to see all the blips. And finally, I would say from a perspective of development of treatments and of vaccinations and of testing, we allowed the pharmaceutical companies to create these things on their own instead of, again, having the federal government really take this under control, work with one or two organizations and do this effectively. So all of those things collectively led to the cases and the deaths that we saw in the United States. The response, I will just add very quickly on the vaccination part, is somewhat better, but still not perfect. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you just said about we open the economy too quickly. You know, there part of the pain and suffering of this pandemic has not just been the virus itself and people, of course, suffering and getting sick and dying, but people have suffered With the shutdown of the economy, loss of income, the loss of the ability to just pay for the basics, food, shelter, clothing. So how do you reconcile that? And when you say we opened up too soon, people who have suffered economically might say we didn't open up soon enough. Right. So I think always so the metaphor I use for understanding all of this is the following. So when we think about, let's say, a marathon runner. A marathon runner who runs 26.2 miles is really a great athlete, injures themselves, right? And then is off the track for a very long time, let's say for a two-month period or three-month period. That person is not going to go back the minute that they're healed to running 26.2 miles. They're going to open slowly. So when I say I completely agree that the economic, emotional, psychological suffering sits at an equal level with the physical suffering we've experienced in our country. However, 
what I think the challenge was last summer and what the, the challenge was last spring was that people just wanted to rip the Band-Aid off, open all the shops, take our masks off. And as a result of that, we didn't transition in a methodical way. The states that did it, and I quite frankly think New Jersey is one of the leaders in this regard, had a better response ultimately than other states throughout the country. But the states that just ripped the Band-Aid off had continuate like Florida had a continuation of the pandemic, rising cases, rising deaths, and as a result, the perpetuation of the disease. If we had just stayed a little more silent and contained and more methodical throughout the country consistently with New Jersey as a model, we may have been in a better place at a sooner time. So, Dr. Halkidis, a big problem right now is vaccine hesitancy. And the people who are hesitant have various reasons as to why they are. So is there a way that we can talk to each other, that we can talk to our friends and family about the vaccine without creating conflict, without pushing them away? What's your advice? How do we talk to each other without getting confrontational? Well, first of all, so I'll, I'll I'll convey a story, Carol. I had a, somebody from uh, TaskRabbit, which is like you know these companies where people come and fix things in your house, right? So I needed like I needed a faucet installed because you know I can't I can't do that. I tried, but it <laughs> failed. Um, so he came over and we had our masks on, and he was telling me about himself and his wife and their children and how they were just waiting and seeing. And my response to him was, "Look, I think that you should trust the vaccines." I was just I conveyed information to him. We've been doing vaccinations for 70 years. Yes, there were mistakes at the beginning. Of course, there's going to be one or two cases where people are not going to have a good reaction. But if you want to have a quote unquote normal life, you need to get vaccinated. Because I said to him, I have a sense that in the future, there's going to be certain environments that we're not going to be able to navigate unless we have proof of vaccination. And so just do it for that reason. The next time I saw him, he had been fully vaccinated and I spoke to him as an equal. So I think that's one thing to do. The second thing is I love all of these innovative ways of rewarding people for being vaccinated. I love the beer. I love the wine. I love the lottery. I love the scholarships. These are brilliant, brilliant approaches because we know consistently from research that when you reward people, when you give them incentives, it increases the likelihood of their behavior. So keep doing that amazing sort of cool out of the box thinking, right? then we will get more people vaccinated. And again, Carol, I think there's like 20% of the public that will never be vaccinated no matter what we do. They're just stuck. But there's that 30% who I think are malleable, and that's where our efforts should go. Okay. Convince those people to try to get in and get a shot. One of the kind of the core debates that we've faced in this country since the beginning of the pandemic is the public health versus privacy versus our individual rights that we take very seriously in this country. We haven't balanced that well. What is the answer to that? My answer to that is that if you're part of a civil society, you give up some of your rights, right? So this is like, you know, basic, you know, conceptions of how uh, societies work. So I want police, I want a government, I want like my streets clean. I give up a certain amount of my rights. I pay taxes for that too. So I think that is the philosophy I start with, which is that if you are part of a civil society, being part of a civil society means that you have to care for yourself, not more than you care for the others in your life. The second thing I would say is that there's a pretty clear body of work out there that shows that when we tap into people's empathy and their altruism, they're more likely to engage in health behaviors. We know this from the HIV world. We know it from the cancer world. There's a lot of literature out there. What I've been saying all along to my friends and my family is, my brother has progressive MS. Mm. Even if I was resistant to getting the vaccine, I would do it for him. So I want every single person to think about the most vulnerable person in their lives and get the vaccination for that person in that person's honor. That's what I think we have to do better. I want to look forward now because we have been warned that this is not going to be the last pandemic we face. Are we more prepared for the next one? Did we learn anything here that do you think we're going to make meaningful change so that we respond better to the next one? You know, Carol, that's a, such a great question. And I wrote an essay about six months ago that tried to tie what HIV and because that was the last pandemic we really faced, like a really big pandemic we faced to SARS-CoV-2. 
I, I do think, I, I don't want to be an optimist, and I tend to be an optimist. We've learned in the last 40 years. We have. The fact that we actually start to develop vaccines and thinking about the viruses when the first SARS happened in the early 2000s put us in a really good position here. So that's all really good. Here's where I think we went wrong. We have depleted the public health workforce consistently for the last decade. There's no money in the public health anymore, right? And yet here came a pandemic and we were expecting public health to solve the problems. Well, public health doesn't have the money to solve the problems. We need to build that infrastructure up again in a way where it's robust and ready and have a playbook in hand. I think if we are able to do that, we will be in better shape. The fears, the emotions, the anxieties, the reactions, you know, the don't sit on the toilet seat in 1985 became the don't bring the grocery bags in your house in 2000, right? That's always going to happen because human beings are human beings. But if we can build a public health infrastructure and, and develop a public health workforce that actually is able to speak to people the way we spoke about before in a real way and convey scientific information and looks like the people they're trying to convey the information to, we'll be in much, much, much better shape next time around. Dr. Halkidis, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Carol. Thank you. We'll be right back to The Road Past the Pandemic, sponsored by Independence Blue Cross. When someone at KYW News Radio goes out to cover a story, there's a lot that just doesn't make it on the radio. I cannot believe this is going on. In a world of lazy arguments, it's one of the laziest. I'm Jay Scott Smith. And I talk to my colleagues about everything you didn't get to hear on the air on the podcast, The Rundown, from KYW News Radio. Listen free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to The Road Past the Pandemic, presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Jamie Zuckerman is a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in Ardmore. Dr. Zuckerman, thank you for joining us. We're talking about returning to normal, but of course, one of the big questions is what is normal these days. And I know in your practice, you deal with anxiety, patients with anxiety, you deal with people who have anxiety, dealing with everyday life stressors. And I guess our everyday life stressors have, they're on steroids now. (laughs) And so I'm wondering what you're hearing from your patients and what your concerns are kind of collectively as we all try to move into this new normal and we deal with our anxiety. Sure. So one of the things that I see now as we as we see restrictions being lifted is that people who were anxious during quarantine during lockdowns are actually they're ready they're ready to go back out they have some concerns they have you know normal anxiety we just experienced a collective trauma so if we didn't have anxiety it would be very strange so i tell people having anxiety is healthy it's normal it keeps us safe so to have that going back out is perfectly normal. I found that people who had anxiety prior to the pandemic, during the quarantine, during the lockdown, during this time, actually had less anxiety because there was now a valid reason to be anxious. So their anxiety actually had somewhere to fall. And now that that is ending, they're actually the ones whose anxiety is spiking. You know, I've experienced some of this weirdness of going out in public and seeing mm-hmm. faces. And I just, I went into a store yesterday where they're not requiring masks <laughs> in the PA suburbs. And it says, if you're fully vaccinated, I'm like, okay, I am. So I didn't wear my mask. And I, like this other woman turned around, we looked at each other. I'm like, it's just so weird to see your face. It yeah. is, there's a strangeness about what's yes. quote unquote normal. Yeah. And I think our definition of quote normal is going to have to be revisited. We haven't seen people's faces truly, except our families in over a year. Now, when we see people's faces and their mouths, we've associated that with danger. So now we're back out and we see people's faces and we're associating it with that weirdness that you said, that kind of danger and this question of, should I approach them or not? So we've deprived ourselves from human connection, from interacting with people. And now this thing that was so positive is now viewed as scary. So it's a very weird transition and it's going to take a long time for people to settle back into that. When you say a long time, what does that mean? And how do we talk ourselves through this, I guess? Like, how do we get ourselves 
through this anxious period so we can kind of feel more comfortable and more relaxed when we're out? So one of the things that makes our anxiety lower is actually doing the thing that we're fearful of in baby steps. So I have told my patients this, when you go back out into quote normalcy, whatever that is going to look like, it's going to be different for every single person. It's going to depend on your experiences during this time. Did you lose someone you love? Were you completely, no one in your family had COVID? Somebody had COVID, you gave it to them. They have long-term symptoms. So I think that it's going to depend on personal experiences. It's going to depend on people's coping strategies that they had prior to this. And everybody's going to respond to this differently. As far as what to do and how people handle this, the best thing to do is to move towards the thing that you're fearful of, move towards the thing that you're anxious of in very small steps. So I tell people when you go back out, if you used to go to the gym five days a week, start one day a week, you know, and then gradually work your way up to two and to three. And do it small because this is going to be awkward for everybody. And again, that's, that's normal. Go into this knowing it's going to be awkward rather than expecting it not to be. So this is going to be awkward for everybody. We're all going to have to work our way through it. But at what point should you get professional help? Like if you're, you know, we're all going to have trouble, but at what point does, do you think like, okay, somebody needs to seek a professional to help them work through this? That's a great question. It's going to depend on the degree to which it interferes with that person's day-to-day functioning. Let's say prior to this, they were very social. They were outgoing. They had no difficulty going into their office. If they find that their avoidance of those situations as they, as they become safe is interfering with their day-to-day normal functioning that existed, let's say pre-pandemic, and they're not sleeping well, or their appetite is affected, they're isolating themselves, they're having panic attacks, or they're starting to feel kind of helpless, like what's the point in this, that's when I would start to seek help. And a good anchor point, like I said, is if you notice that you're really not able to function in your day to day, that it's impacting your, your performance at work, it's impacting your family relationships, your friends and things like that. What are the things you mentioned earlier, collective trauma, you know, some people have had loved ones die. Some people have seen, you know, have had more than one person they love die or get sick. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of that lingering collective trauma that we're in and how we deal with it? Yeah. So collective trauma, meaning there's not one person in the world who has not experienced COVID. Whatever that looks like is different for everyone, but everybody experienced this. And we really haven't had that. You know, the the only thing that I can compare, and it's still so different, would be 9-11. But the difference between a trauma like that and a trauma like this is that with 9-11, there was a distinct beginning, middle, and an end point to the event. It had lingering effects, obviously, but It was an isolated event. With COVID, there's no real beginning, middle, and end. And there's so much uncertainty. And there's so many different opinions and views. And the reason why I think this is going to linger for a lot longer is because of that uncertainty. And people are not good. None of us are good with managing uncertainty because as human beings, we like to be able to predict what comes next. And with this, we just don't know. So then how do we help each other Mm -hmm. get through this? I think we have to be patient with one another, kind to one another, understand that everybody is going to manage this differently. You may have a friend or family member that was raring to go back out into public six months ago. You may have people that are refusing to get vaccinated. You may have people who are gradually going to reenter. And I think that assuming that everything you're doing is safe and the people you're around are safe, we have to be patient with everybody's level of familiarity, comfortability, re-entering into this. That's the first thing. The second thing is to remind yourself that everything you're feeling right now is completely normal. The anxiety you have, the uncertainty you have, the sadness you have, the guilt that you may have, there's a lot of guilt with this. There's a lot of remorse. 
there's grieving, there's, you know, like I said, anxiety, and we have to be willing to feel those emotions because they are all appropriate. And the more you allow yourself to, to feel them and know that they're okay and that they're not scary, the sooner you'll be more comfortable being uncomfortable. Dr. Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We've spent an hour talking about what we've learned during the pandemic. Dr. Halkidis made the point that we need to focus on the science to make investments in public health if we want to be prepared for the next one. But one thing that we kept seeing over and over again during the last year was a pushback against science. And I asked Dr. Halkidis what he thought about that. We've seen a pushback from science for the last 50 years, quite frankly. People like myself who've been doing science, who've been trying to advance these ideas, have been confronted by this, you know, this notion that somehow we are elitist in our approach. And so there's a schism in our society, I think, that academics and and scientists face um, from the general public. And I will say part of that problem, Carol, is our own doing. You know, the way we speak to others, the way we convey knowledge as if we know more than they do, that's not the way to do good science. If we had spent the last 50 years working hand in hand with the community, working hand in hand with the population, not treating the people who are living in the general population as not as intelligent as us, there might have been greater trust. Mm. And I think that we just added to this fuel, right? And so we've got to rethink the way, yeah, sure, they should be listening to science, but we've got to rethink the way we do business as scientists, quite frankly, and stop othering most people. Mm. Can we, I mean, is there anything we can do at this point of the pandemic to kind of put that genie back in the bottle and move things forward? Well, look, I think, you know, the reason I've spent the last year and a half, you know, doing radio shows and news interviews is because I want to convey to people in a regular, very basic way what the information is and like give them the knowledge so that they can make a decision. So I think that if we can have scientists, you know, and practitioners and researchers and doctors just go out into the community like we're doing right here and have an open and honest conversation and listen to people. Don't dismiss their their fears. Don't dismiss the fact that they don't want to marry. Own the fact that these are very complicated issues. We will able to get that, what I believe is that 30% who are hesitant still, our own vaccines over the line, and we will be in a much better shape. I also asked Dr. Paul Offit if he's faced any pushback or worse like other doctors have during the last year. I'm wondering because you are you you are a public figure right now in this pandemic. Have you faced backlash personally? Have you been threatened? Yes, absolutely. I think my most recent one from the past couple of days was there's a cold spot in hell that's reserved for you. Um, although I thought that hell was supposed to be really hot and that a cold <laughs> spot would be a better area. But in any case, the the you know, I get those all the time. You know, your judgment day is coming. Um, yeah, and, and certainly a lot of expletives that I get. But, um, yeah, no, I, th- I think that um, there is at some level an anti-science sentiment here. People simply uh, declare their own truths, including scientific truths. I think the previous administration uh, did much to discredit science-based agencies like the FDA, the CDC, the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, so I think there is sort of an anti-science bias and I think, um, you know, those science-based agencies have served us well. And more importantly, science has served us well. It's science that brought us out of the age of darkness into the age of enlightenment. We shouldn't be so quick to reject it. So we want to end this with thanks. Our thanks to the scientists and the doctors and the nurses and the frontline workers who have helped all of us get through this, including Dr. Paul Offit, Dr. Perry Halkidis, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, and of course, our medical editor here at KYW, Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm Carol McKenzie. Thanks for listening to The Road Past the Pandemic, a KYW News Radio in-depth special presented by Independence Blue Cross.